0: Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by voiceover artists, we make your life sound more exciting than it is. Now let's
1: dim the lights and start the show. Welcome everybody to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Spasmodica. The biggest advancement in shoe technology since the Stone Age. It's like walking on clouds. Pick up a pair of Spasmodicas while supplies last welcome everybody to the pestle i am wes and i am todd and this is a film podcast by filmmakers for filmmakers about filmmaking no, 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 i've gone too far um but that's <laughs> what we do where we we do all kinds of things i'm like an actor a writer a, a full-time filmmaker you're a full-time producer and you've put on the director hat many times yourself and your writer. And uh, you're also a musician as we covered with some depth last week. If you haven't listened to the once edition of the pestle, you should go backwards in time and do that, (laughs) but touch on it again, because we do a lot of things. We're constantly, I honestly think of myself as a really lazy human being and I throw that out every once in a while to people whenever we're talking about things. And some people are like, no, nah, you know, I don't think you're lazy. I feel lazy. And I think it's just because maybe it's the standards that I have and the expectations that I have on, on my life, right? I, I want to be doing X, Y, Z. And so it doesn't matter that, you know, we do this podcast every week on top of my regular work and I have side projects and I'm writing and whatever. I still feel lazy because I have this vision of where I want to be. But even regardless if people other people think I am or not, you are definitely not lazy you especially if the last month is any indication because you just finished building your own studio in your backyard and it's an incredible piece of technology um, that cavemen would certainly applaud and you know guffaw like they uh, <laughs> the discovery of fire itself Todd um, what did you build and why did you build it? <laughs>
0: Oh yeah. Um, so this is our maiden voyage here in my new, uh, my new abode. A couple of months ago, a friend of our family was going to come and live with us, told us that she was moving here, back here from New York and she needed a place to stay. And so I said, okay, that's great. Well, we've been recording in my, you know, I have been recording in our, our spare bedroom and which was going to be her bedroom. And I said, okay, well, where am I supposed to do my, my, you know, my podcast? Where am I supposed to work? Cause I work here too during the day. I had been throwing around this idea of doing one of the, those, you know, kind of shed studio things. And, you know, I looked into it like in ad nauseum, like in such detail, can I afford this? And, you know, is it worth it? Long story short, and I'll make it very short. I sold some, some tracks that I had been working on. I will don't shake your head. <laughs> I sold some tracks and I made some money that I had been working on that I made in that room. And I talked to my wife and I said, what if I put all that money and a little bit more and into this room and I build it myself, we have a space out in the backyard. I'll get, we, we have this stupid HOA. I hate HOAs. Sorry. I even have one. It's, they're terrible for so many, so many reasons, not just personally, but racially, but I got their approval I talked to my neighbors, got their approval and I started building this thing and it turned into from, you know, from day one, like Wes, you came out and you helped. I, my father-in-law helped and he, thank God, he's built a house with his bare hands. So he knows how to do all this stuff. I knew nothing. And then after that first day, it really hit home where I was like, oh, I have a frame. Now what? Everyone's gone. Oh shit. (laughs) And Thankfully, you know, you came back and helped me dig the ditch. Another buddy helped with Scott helped several times um, as well. And then, oh, and you helped me with the uh, the drywall, the roof, the ceiling drywall, which is the worst drywall. Gables, yeah, (laughs) drywall is the worst. But uh, I knew nothing, and I did the whole rest of it by myself, and it was like so eye opening, not only to how amazing builders are. But how creative they are and how all of these like little things you think are no big deal or you get annoyed at your, you know, if your house isn't perfect or something if you buy a house. But like it is incredible what human beings can do. Like I look at a skyscraper now and I'm even more baffled. Like I can't even get (laughs) I can't, you know, it takes me all day to figure out angles for a roof that's 12 and a half degrees imagine yeah you know these architects designing
1: and then these builders building all these like the vision structures. that it takes for something you see years ahead around corners like that yes. blows my mind
0: yeah and these are and these are also buildings that are having to account for things like air conditioning and air air conditioning ducts for me i did a split I did a split unit so i have just this thing hanging on the wall and then the unit outside there's no duct work but to, you got to take that into account. You got to take plumbing into account and electrical. Uh, I did electrical in here.
1: And wind itself, like wind velocity, like the fact uh, that yes. your building is standing in the middle of uh, the environment. <laughs> yes. And and you got to factor in sway. And anyway,
0: mm. so it was, incred- it was an incredible experience. It was a very eye-opening experience. And I'm so proud of this thing. I think I was talking to my buddies the other day, my old band and I, we have a thread that we always talk on. And, you know, I sent that video I sent to you, Wes, about, you know, with this finished room when it was empty. I told him, I said, I think I'm most proud in my life of my kids, my marriage, my I even forgot the other thing, (laughs) (laughs) my kids, my marriage and and this room. Oh, my my album and this room Mm -hmm. in that order. Like it's right there. It's like on, on one hand. Because I just couldn't believe after that first day, I thought I was done. I thought, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? And now I'm sitting in here for the first time. This is the first thing I've done in this room right now. I haven't done anything. Haven't recorded or haven't done like any work, nothing. Turned it on and this is it. And it's pretty, pretty damn awesome. So thanks for bearing (laughs) with me when I told that story. So anybody I'm just saying. If you, you know, you can do anything, guys, if I can build it, if I can build (laughs) a room with power and it actually sounds really excellent in here. I mean, I build all the sound panels. I mean, I don't know if you can. What do we have here? I don't know if you can even I don't know if you can see that. Oh, yeah, that's my my cloud. So these things in the corners, those are bass traps. And then uh, if I don't, I had to make them angled so they'd sit in the corner and then this is not angled it's just straight like a box but i made two of them put them together and made them double and thick and i hung them above me
1: so with the bass traps um whenever you catch one if it's too little do you throw it back uh <laughs> <laughs>
0: no you keep that shit you keep you that okay you keep that shit <laughs> but yeah crazy but i'm so glad it's done and i'm i'm really proud of it so
1: Dude, it looks amazing. I'm Thanks so for, proud of thank you. Thank you for your help. Yeah. I mean, it was an inch. Uh, well, <laughs> it was
0: half an dude, inch. <laughs> but that's <laughs> the thing. Like, seriously,
1: having people like you to,
0: to say, dude, this is amazing. When it was a pile of crap, just sitting there doing nothing. And I, ha- I mean, the idea, it's like running a marathon and you're on mile three and you want to quit. <laughs> on mile three. <laughs> uh, like... I I had no idea how I was going to finish it, and also I want to give props to my wife, my wonderful, amazing wife, who sat quietly, said nothing. I mean, she she didn't she didn't help either. Let's be clear, which is fine. I never asked her. I never asked her, but she did help in that she allowed me to crack out on this. And by yeah. crack out, I mean we've talked about it. I can't do more than one thing at once. I have to focus until something is done. And this thing took a month to build and she never complained one time, not once. It was crazy. Uh, it was like so supportive. So I want to thank her too. So Scott, uh, uh, Caleb, uh, Wes, Jenny, Ronnie, my father-in-law. Shoot. Who am I forgetting? Um, I don't know. Yeah.
1: But I get and, it. Man. And everybody. I was thinking earlier, not even that long ago, I was uh, thinking about Izzy, you know, just uh, all the all the listeners that we have. I mean, we have a handful that, you know, talk to us and, you know, drop a comment or an email. uh, And I was just reflecting on, you know, how great it is having people like that, having people like Izzy um, and Junie Marie and, you know, just our buddy Joe, like so many people Mm -hmm. um, that uh, Joseph even on Facebook he'll he'll drop us you know a thing or two, but having even just that you know makes gives you so much wind uh, to for your second breath, and whenever I think about you out there like building this thing by yourself like yeah even me showing up for you know a few hours or scott or you know caleb like i'm sure just having people there around uh just gives you that much extra energy and so it's important man whenever you see someone trying to do something like go help or give a word of encouragement something like you'll be surprised uh, the people that you appreciate and what that honest, you know, attention can, can really do for somebody.
0: Dude, a hundred, a hundred percent. And that's why I said, you know, even if you just came over for a couple hours and helped me dig, you know, or just came over for a couple hours and like sat with me and did nothing, just be there
1: was <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, you're out there I, in the desert by yourself. Here's a glass of water. Yeah. Oh, yes, that's a perfect way to
0: say it. Yes, here's a glass of water in the desert. It was um, so necessary and perfect timing and needed. And it wasn't even about the actual manual labor, you know? So, yeah. Anyway.
1: Wow. Well, props, my man. That's thanks, brother. That really is a feat. Like, I've seen my dad growing up build... Uh, Things like that, and uh, I mean, I very much was the the person putting their finger on the shoelace while you tied your shoes. Like I was just doing little as possible, um, and just blown away. And so I know, or at least I have some visual understanding of the work you did, bro. Props, big thanks, big props. Yeah, thank you, dude. Well, now we have a you know a space. You know? Yeah, freaking awesome. I damn, can't pandemic wait to is go over too. We can. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) like record as much as possible for sure. So speaking of doing the most with the least uh, resources possible, um, Mm -hmm. what are we covering today?
0: Today we are covering Following, which was uh, Christopher Nolan's debut film. Uh, So if you haven't watched it, pause this episode, go watch it. it. Yeah, I don't
1: know. Where can people find it? I don't know if it's like... I think if you subscribe to Criterion, um, it's on there, you can stream it there. Okay. It pops up periodically here and there. It's, it's not a very well-known film. And so, yeah, you, you, yeah. you, you got to go out of your way to find it. Um, but if you're a film fanatic as we are, uh, where there's a uh, film, uh, finds a way.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So make sure to uh, pause this episode, go watch it. Cause there's going to be spoilers
1: everywhere for sure. We'll touch on. A few things. We'll talk about some of the cinematography uh, shooting on 16 millimeter film. Um, We'll also touch on writing and editing Uh, in this film. It felt like they were very closely connected, seeing as they were written and edited by the same man um, as well as shot by the same man. And we'll touch on like adding intrigue to a simple story. Uh, We'll also touch on like locations on a small budget. I felt like uh, there's a lot to be said. Uh, about this film and that's probably where it even starts Um, but yeah so we'll talk we'll look through some of the locations that he used and other such stuff and things and stuff
0: and a synopsis of, of the film a young writer who follows strangers for a material meets a thief who takes him under his wing written and directed by Christopher Nolan cinematography by Christopher Nolan starring Jeremy Theobald as Bill Alex Haw as Cobb Lucy Russell as the blonde and John Nolan as the policeman
2: Envelope, photos with a calling card, notes. Sort of unconscious collection, a display. What do you mean, display? Well, display. Each thing tells something very intimate about the people. We're very privileged to see it. It's very rare. Hey, what the the hell do you do that for? It's like a diary. They hide it, but actually they want someone to see it. That's what I do can see on my display, flip sides of the same coin. This way, they'll know that someone's seen it. That's what it's all about. Interrupting someone's life, making them see all the things that they took for granted. Like when they go back and buy all this stuff from the shelves of the insurance money, they'll have to think for the first time in a long time why they wanted all this stuff, what it's for. You take it away, you show them what they had. So saucy, eh? I found these in the last flat. I think I'll just give them something to, uh, chat about. Why would you want to do that? Should buy them as chance and ask them what you've been doing. Yeah, but why would you want to fuck up their relationship? Don't you listen. You take it away. And show them what they have. So, what,
1: uh, was this the first time I assume you've seen it? I, I assume maybe you've even heard of it before? Or was it, were you even aware of this thing? No, I, no,
0: I'd never heard of it before. Never seen it before. Yeah, no, no.
1: completely we do. What? Yeah. How did it strike you? Like, what was the, I don't even know what to call it. Like, what was the experience of, of watching this thing? Because uh, this is made in 1998 on a budget of $6,000 by one of the most well-known filmmakers working today. And this is him. Just trying to make a name. Like, let me just freaking finally make a movie that it barely at like 70 minutes qualifies as a movie. As a movie. Yeah. So what it felt like to me was
0: listening to Pablo Honey for the first time. uh, uh, Radiohead's first record. What it felt like to me was this is the beginning of something was Mm -hmm. this is what potential looks like and the potential and and one of the brilliant things about it for me was that he took away things that you could critique a a seasoned filmmaker for he took away color you can't critique black and white it just is right you can't say okay and i the only way i can compare it is or a good way to compare it is music in music it's very easy to tell if something is a is is cheap if a mix is cheap right if a song is cheap and and made cheaply because of either the vocal or the snare those are the two things the two most important things if you want to sound professional have a good sounding snare that sits well in the mix and a good vocal that's it now if you make a piece of music that doesn't have either of those things you could make it in a bedroom you could make it in a closet you could make it in a high-end million-dollar studio And it will all sound probably very similar. So what does he do? He takes away color. So you can't, you can't look at it and say, this looks cheap because Mm. the color is, is off or is different here than there or whatever. He didn't have money for a colorist probably. And maybe he could have done it himself, but, and there was probably some other motivation to doing it black and white and you probably know it or or whatever. But for me, it was just, it was like, okay, what are the things that are going to, Scream first film scream novice, or that that this was done on a budget, and that's definitely one of them, right The other thing was editing, but he did that himself, so he he like you know did it all the way he wanted it done, and he's brilliant that but and he made it short uh just long enough to be a film, so it didn't drag on for too long, so you know couldn't say, oh, this was great film, but he could have cut thirty minutes off of it well uh, not really then it wouldn't be a film (laughs) then it'd be a short you know and then and there weren't that many characters right we didn't even meet mr bald really i mean we kind of did when he like killed that guy Mm -hmm. in um in her apartment or in yeah in her apartment but but even that was told in flashback yeah exactly like really it was about three people it was about um you know
1: I for his name. Bill Cobb and the Blonde.
0: Bill Cobb and the Blonde. Th- that's it. You know, the policeman was there too, but um, which was his his dad?
1: Yeah. I guess. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so cool. And I don't know if you noticed, but in the credits, his brother was the grip. I did. I was, Jonathan waiting. I was like, was a gri- where is he going to be in here? Where is he? He's a grip. <laughs> Jonathan Nolan was a grip on this. So badass. So, so badass. <laughs> anyway, so, okay. What we have is we have a dude who just wants to make a film. He has a couple grand, you know, he can't spend money on a colorist. He probably knows he's not a very good colorist. He's an editor and a cinematographer and a director. You can't be the best at everything, right? So take color away. Fine. Make the story about three people. So we don't have a lot of shitty actors in this movie. We only have three pretty damn good actors. I mean, I, the blonde, I don't know. She was okay, but I enjoy Cobb, but I really I enjoyed Bill. I thought Bill was fantastic in this film. Um, The editing and the cinematography were great. I never felt like I was taken out of it. Mm -hmm. I felt like it kept moving all the time. There was holds when it needed to hold. There was cuts when it needed to cut. The music was nine. There was like barely any, there was one piece of music that just kept coming back. It was like this, nin, 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 yeah, this kind little of techno. Fast- yeah. 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 Which he probably did, mm-hmm. you know, by himself with a Casio keyboard or something <laughs> in his apartment. So, yeah. So that's what I, that's the way I felt. I felt like I was watching the beginning of greatness who knew that it's all about story and it's all about tricking, not tricking, but it's all about giving you a payoff in the end. You think you know where the story is going and then you find out it was going somewhere else the whole time. So that when you look back at it, his play with time, you look back on your experience of that film and you think, oh, it was telling me that the whole time. But I just didn't see it until now. And now if I go back and watch it again, I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Look out for that, dude. Look out (laughs) for that. You know? Yeah. So I what was his film after this? Memento. His next Memento, holy crap, dude! Yeah. Yes, and what was Radiohead's second record? Okay, no, was it?
1: Was it okay? Okay, computer, holy crap! Damn, or no, <laughs> it was the
0: Benz. It was the Benz. Oh, was I'm the so Benz. sorry. Okay. It was the Benz. I'm so sorry. So Pablo Honey, and then the Benz. Oh my God, one of the most seminal rock albums of all time, you know. And then the, and then Okay Computer, and then Kid, you like all these unbelievable. You know, Memento, uh, and then wh- whatever else—I don't even know what's next after that—but it it just felt like the beginning of some greatness. And mostly, mostly because of the story, I felt like the story was basic enough, but intriguing enough, and the writing was smart enough. Like mm-hmm. having Cobb be so smart about human beings, and and the, it's really a story about human beings. And that was a great clip you picked of "Take It Away." So that they see what they had,
1: because even at the end, you could still make the case that even though he was hired to do a job in his in his worldview, Cobb's worldview, he was giving something to Bill by taking away everything that he had in his life. Yeah. And that plays right into that whole ideology of the way he sees the world. Right. Because Bill was so, you know, he was like a he
0: was a writer, but he was just like, you know, he was a loser. Let's be, let's be clear. You know, like he had nothing in his life. He had no goal. He had no, you know, no drive. Yes. He was a writer, but what was he writing a piece on, on people for what, for who, for himself. Right.
1: Which even, even the story I feel like could be reflective of Christopher Nolan himself. Right. You have. Oh, good point. Right. A writer who's just trying to make something and he can't figure out what to make. And he, he, maybe he doesn't have the resources maybe he doesn't have you know the grand ideas and so he's like okay well freak you know forget it i'll just make a movie about a writer who has no ideas <laughs> and in order to generate ideas he starts following people around and then you know it, it unfolds from there and i'll get into some of the location stuff uh in a bit but yeah i think that's that's really good points i think uh with the with the black and white very strong like reducing the number of ways, the the points of failure, like that's a really good angle um, and a really smart way to, to think about it. And I hadn't really considered it that way and watching it right now. And uh, <laughs> so it's, are you the, distracted by the film right now? Yeah. Well, there was just a scene and it's at the 36 minute mark when uh, the blonde is walking around. And you can see at the top of the screen, there's a, a little overlap between the this frame and the, the frame above us. And so there's just like at the very top, this very small sliver that shows you the, the frame above. And so it's it's very, I don't know, it's, it's, it's adorable. There's a hair in the gate right now at the bottom of the frame, um, <laughs> and right around the 38-minute mark. And so I'm just looking <laughs> at these details, and it's it's very endearing, you know. And for me, it, it gives me, like, hope. <laughs> like, okay, yeah. you don't got to be perfect because i I love your point um reduce the points of failure and now you can't be judged on color you can't be judged on like even some of those things get lost like the hair in the gate i've seen this movie now over the last uh 48 hours uh three two or three times and that's the first time i've noticed that particular hair in the gate and that's a big one but i didn't notice it um because i was you know, the story is interesting enough. Um, and Can you
0: clarify what that means? Yes. Like what?
1: So a hair in the gate is it's kind of a, a catch all term for there might be something whenever you're shooting film, you load film into uh, what's called a magazine. Um, it's a it's a canister that holds the film that you plug into your film camera. And then at the front of the edge of the, the magazine is where the film it gets exposed to air. Now, whenever it's plugged into the film camera, that's running beneath the lens and that's where the you know the light hits the lens and the lens projects it onto the film and the film is running very very fast usually at 24 frames per second um, if you're shooting normal film style and so what can happen though and and that's called the gate right there where the uh, the film is exposed and uh, into the air um, beneath the lens that's that's called the gate and what can happen is because we live in a, a filthy world filled with molecules and particles of things, um, and what, viruses, viruses and and hair. <laughs> and so what can happen is uh, a number of things. One, literally hair can actually get into uh, if you're swipping, switching out lenses. Like you pull the lens out. Now the the gate is exposed to the open elements. And so what you'll normally do is take some compressed air or an air blower and just blow air in there to, to, you know, swoosh out any anything that might be living in there. And then you put on the next lens and maybe you do this as well whenever you're swapping, swapping the the magazine. You also got to do it when you load and unload the film, like because. The hair or the dirt molecules can all hitch a ride onto the film as it's whooshing out of the uh, one side of the magazine, getting exposed and being uptaken on the other side of the magazine. And so, but what normally it is, it's not usually hair. Uh, usually it's going to be dirt or more specifically, it'll be little broken pieces of the film itself. Uh, it's pretty fragile. Kodak does an incredible job of absolutely minimizing anything that might be in the uh, they go through incredibly great lengths to make sure there's no dirt whenever they spool it onto the uh, on the spool and, and they, you know, send it to you. Um, and so normally it's going to be you, but it can still happen. Maybe you uh, load the film a little tightly. And so as it's, you know, rolling over these rollers, uh, it can just chip off a little bit or maybe it's a little too loose and it chips off, you know, and it's sticking out a little bit as it's rolling over the gate. And so there's all kinds of things that can go wrong. And so you ha- have to constantly be checking because it's one of those things you won't really know until the film has been exposed and you're looking at it, you know, sometimes a week later after your shoot. And so it's something you,
0: you recently did a shoot with film, right? I did. And you, you got scared, like something happened and you got scared and then, what yeah, happened?
1: a number of things happened. So my buddy Juwan has a, a, a clothing label called Aslani um, that's representative of his time in Austin and Los Angeles and New York is where he now resides. Um, and he's also uh, a film professional. He's got two Emmys. Uh, I don't know if we've ever talked about him on the air, but great guy. We used to be roommates, whatever. And so uh, I, I was wanting to do something for somebody. I feel like I never have anybody who just comes in out of left field and says, Hey Wes, can I just produce a film for you? Or Hey Wes, can I do whatever for you? So I was like, I was thinking about shooting something for me and I was having a down moment and one of my buddies on the, on our big thread, um, the text thread, the cookie duster thread, as we call it, comes up and he's like, yo, Wes, you know, why don't you just do, do something for Juwan? I was like, yeah, you know what, man, I'm going to do that. I'm going to hit him up. And so I offered like, hey, if you send me some some wardrobe, I'll I'll shoot a, a fashion video for you. And so I had, you know, five cans of film that I've been holding on uh, for the last six years. I bought my Super 16 camera six years ago. I've only shot a couple projects on it. And whenever I bought it, the guy who sold it to me threw in five cans of film. And so I've been holding on to this film for ages now. And, and this guy has been trying to get it back too, right? Yeah, he's been kind of a jerk. Uh, I, I was going <laughs> to call him the, a D word, but uh, just because he keeps asking and then he doesn't respond to me whenever I have a question. And so it's oh, one yeah. of these things where he's like, Hey man, uh, I was just thinking about my old camera. Uh, you, you ever think about selling it? I sure wouldn't mind buying it back. I regret selling it. And I'm like, no, nah, man, I appreciate it. If I ever do think about selling it, you'll be the first to know, I promise. But you know, while we're talking, I'm, I'd really love to upgrade the video tap like right now it's old SD black and white. It's just kind of garbage. Do you know where I can, uh, do you have any ideas who I could source that out to? Um, and then just crickets. And then six months later, hey man, I was just thinking about that camera. Oh God. <laughs> and we repeated that a few times and now he's going into my spam filter. I'm just like, you know what? F off. You're you're just yeah. a self-serving prick at this point. Um, and yeah. now if I, if I do sell it, I'm going to literally sell it to someone else and then send him the receipt. Like, just, <laughs> like, just I wouldn't really do that because I'm never selling oh, this camera. Oh shit, don't but do it. It's a do funny it. line, but it's like, don't ask something for someone and then like, don't. Right. Yeah, that's just kind of a jerk mode. Anyway, and so I've been holding on to these five cans of film for six years. And here's the thing. They haven't been kept well. I have stored these uh, for the first, I don't know, let's say three years. I stored it in my fridge, which is where it should be. And then I moved out. Uh, I I roomed with you for a little over a year. And and, in that time, for about six months, we kept it in the attic, which in Texas heat, not good. Really not good. not good. And I was so stressed and because I just didn't have much space in my, my room and I was finally like, I need to do something. And so I pulled it into my bedroom at least um, for the remaining whatever, six, nine months. So <laughs> I, and then I moved into my new place and I was like, why would I, I, now I have a roommate and we just have no fridge space to put it in there. Uh, and I was like, I kind of already, crapped all over this film. I'm not going to like go out of my way to suddenly treat it good now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just been sitting on my shelf in my bedroom. All that to say, if you don't treat your film well, if it's been exposed to poor elements like heat, uh, there can be this element that's called fogging. Where the film kind of thickens and can uh, create some some unpleasant effects to the film. And it's not like this cool hipster look. It's like it, it reduces contrast, and uh, you're just not going to get you know the the really nice crisp clear uh, film footage that you want. And in order to combat against that, what you can do is overexpose the film, and then whenever you get it, uh, let's say, and this is going to get technical. I don't think I can get into all the nitty gritty, but uh, what the general idea is, if you overexpose it, put too much light on it, then whenever you have uh, the processing lab process it, you say, don't process it for quite as long. And that helps to reduce the fogging effect by just putting more light on it and having it spend less time in development. That's supposed to help mitigate some of that. And so anyway, that was my plan. I'm going to overexpose this by over a stop. Which is a good amount of light, enough, whatever. So, <laughs> we yeah. get out on set. We're shooting. I have three rolls and I have three magazines. I shoot. You know, the first magazine. We go through my shot list, and the day is already kind of off to a rough start because uh, the clouds have kind of suddenly rolled over. I like shooting outside. In hard daylight. I really like hard lighting uh, in my daytime shoots. So I can shoot into the sun, I can get these nice hard lights, uh, shadows. And so I really like using that style um, for this type of shoot, especially for fashion. And so I'm out there. And it's looking like it, you know, it's going to do what Texas does, which is hard daylight. But the problem is we're also in November. And so literally within three or four, maybe five minutes, uh, the sun goes from a couple clouds to completely overcast. There's not a, a splotch of uh, sky in the sky. Like it's all cloud. It's absolutely atrocious. And so I'm like, great. You know, this is this is also a good start. So we start working through my shot list. And then on top of that, we're shooting at a skate park, and there's way more people than should be out there at 8 a.m. on a Sunday. Um, <laughs> and so I'm like, I've lost my set. I've lost my sky. Hey guys, we're gonna have a great day today. <laughs> and then to top it off, we start going through my shot list, and we finished a full eleven minutes of film. It's four hundred feet. I have three rolls that I'm shooting today, and i i go to man I go to switch out magazines, and I realized I had three stops of ND filter intentionally. I had put three stops of ND filter on the front of my 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 camera to help cut down sunlight because it's still really, really bright out there and I'm shooting on pretty sensitive film. Um, and even though I'm trying to overexpose it, there's still too much light. And so, you know, you prep for that and I was, you know, whatever I rented my filters, but what I didn't do is I didn't factor in the, uh, the, the light meter. I didn't add to my light meter to factor in three stops of ND filter. And so now what was supposed to be overexposed is now underexposed. (laughs) By at least two stops, and so I'm just all kinds of headache. And then luckily, though, I have two more rolls, and we shoot those, and everything goes fine. Whatever I get, I send did it you to, change the the filtering or or yes, you stopped for it? the okay yeah for the for the second and third rolls, I was able to adjust in my light meter to account for the uh, underexposed, you know the the the, the extra three stops of indie filter, Um, and so get the film back. Very nervous. I'm nervous the entire time for so many reasons now. Like I've burned an entire roll of film because I screwed up the exposure. And then on top of that, I don't know if the film's any good anyway. It's just been, I didn't run a test. I could have just rolled like 50 feet of film and sent it to Kodak uh, to see if this is any good. But uh, I I don't know. It's one of those things you think about well after the fact is like, why didn't I do this as they're exposing, you know, 1200 feet of film. I'm like, I could have done this with 50. (laughs) Yeah. And so I get the film back hyper nervous because now I've spent, you know, hundreds on my models. I've spent hundreds more on film processing and scanning and shipping. And I look at the film and it's amazing, like, how much film can take a beating. Like, I put this thing through hell and it still looks incredible. Even the, the film that, uh, the, that first roll, there's still gonna be some usable stuff. And what's really amazing about that is that first roll had other issues with it. Like, I think there's something wrong with my magazine. Uh, there's something some jittering going on in the gate. Uh, and so the film isn't always stable. There's some weird lighting aberrations that's happening some streaking uh, that's happening. But I mean, it's, it's a fashion video, some of that can play a shot in slow motion, which helps uh, kind of negate some of the jitteriness. And then you know, some weird lighting effects. Hey, whatever, it's fashion. Like if I pull a couple shots in and then on top of that, I have to push the exposure by three stops just to get the exposure right. I'm putting this film through the freaking ringer and it's still doing well, man. If you ever want to shoot film, it's so forgiving. I promise you, you can try to mess it up and you'll probably still get something out of it. Like you got to go out of your way to, to really ruin it. Um, and if you just do the bare minimum, you'll get something out of it. I promise. So don't be afraid to shoot film is, I guess, the, the lesson for that. But watching and on top of that. I still had some hair in the gate issues, like, uh, very small. <laughs> like if it wasn't enough, I'm just piling on all my bullshit, but there's, you know, right on the fringes of the frame, um, there's a little bit of a hair in the gate, a little dirt accumulation on the bottom, right? Uh, which is fine. I'm not going to go out of my way to, to remove it. I might do a, a light pass of some, some dirt removal software just to see what it does, but I'm not going to get hung up on it for sure. But watching Christopher Nolan's film, uh, sorry for the 75 minute detour. Um, I feel you I and really enjoy it yeah you do <laughs> and it's 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 endearing and I and I identify with it uh, because you can't account for everything especially whenever you're doing it all yourself and he was like he had help he had a grip you know he had his baby bro helping gripping and uh, people lending a hand when he could it's funny because he's strung out like three minutes worth of credits uh, when it could have been easily like a 25 second roll. (laughs) Oh yeah. It was so long. Oh my gosh. Like he really wants you to read every word, every word and probably extending it just so that it doesn't look like, Oh, it's a 70 minute film uh, in yeah. order to make the bare, you know, minimum. Like we'll right. make it 71 minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> credits. And so it's, uh, I, I love that kind of thing. And the, he shot on black and white. So right now to shoot, to buy, not even process and scan one roll of film, uh, just to buy the film itself. It's about 200 bucks. Uh, And at the time, and right now, shooting black and white is cheaper. So he could shave a few bucks shooting black and white. And so right now to buy black and white film for 16 instead of, you know, 197 bucks, it's like 177 bucks. So you save 20 bucks per roll, which adds up if you only have six grand that's precious. Every single dollar you can save is precious. Uh, not to mention processing, scanning, maybe it was a little cheaper in 98 because of the volume that they could do. Maybe he could go in and buy what's called short ends. If I didn't roll out every single roll, like if you're on a major production and you're shooting five, six, seven minute scenes, then you might roll, you know, six, seven minutes and then have four minutes left over. You're not going to save that four minutes like you're a production that's moving, you're popping. And so you'll do what's called a short end where maybe you'll sell it back to uh, Kodak or to some studio, some rental place, um, and they'll give you whatever, 20 bucks back. And production can use that money, right? And so that rental house will take that, twenty dollars worth of film and now sell it for twenty five dollars so nolan can go in and buy super cheap black and white short ends i don't know that he did this but this is what i would do if i was in a pinch with six grand to make a 70 minute film and then now i have something right now i can shoot for a handful of minutes on 16 i don't know what he shot this on i i could probably pull it up here in five seconds and if you ever go on imdb you can go into what's called the the tech specs the technical specs of the film and find out you know what it was shot on aspect ratio all kinds of things so he shot this on an re flex 16 bl like this is a pretty classic old school 16 millimeter camera oh wow he got it developed and photochem, bro you did not spare any expense I can't imagine that's the case. That's that can't be right. Uh, there's no way he sprung for photo came out in LA. That's insanity. And so is that like an expensive developing that's, company? Yeah, that's the spot. Oh, I bet he did that whenever he after he did memento and was looking at getting this uh, produced. There's no way his first run when he submitted this to festivals he did this through photo zero chance. I just do not believe that for a second. Uh, but maybe, I mean, he's he's also, hey, this is a film purist. So maybe he was like, I'm going to spring for the extra three grand or maybe photo Kim hooked him up. I don't know. Um, but I, I I have a hard time believing that. I don't think I saw photo in the credits. I was looking, not for them specifically, but I read through all the credits. I don't remember seeing them. Mm-hmm. And so I would be surprised. Anyway. And so shooting black and white, you know, can save money for one on a very inexpensive production already, but then also it plays into the the style of the film itself as you hinted. It, you have a really high contrast and that high contrast black and white style is very noir and this is a noir film. And if you don't know what noir is, I don't blame you, it's kind of a hard thing to always define to me in my mind whenever i'm thinking is this a noir film for one the 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 cinematography kind of plays into it a little bit but it's a stylish crime drama Um, usually we recognize it as these hard-boiled detective stories uh, but that's not critical to the genre i think just having more of these sketchy characters with hard to read motives there's usually some kind of thriller aspect Thrillers are very big on plot twists and lies. Usually, that surround something about a lie. There's some core concept of truth and trying to to perceive reality that is at the at the heart of thrillers. Um, and so, truth, lies, character motivations all key to noir and thrillers, which this is what that is. And cinematography wise, like he did a lot of simple setups, a lot of one light and two light setups, Uh, hot light. And this is kind of why I, if you're watching the YouTube version, why I lit the scene the way I did now, I usually go for a little more softer light. Um, But right now it's very hard lighting. And if you watch during that transition, when I switched from the color to this high contrast, black and white, you can see I did very, very little. And there's this very easy quick punch that you know i achieved uh with with just a minimum and so his lighting setups are very much in this style like just let me throw up one or two lights especially in those bar room scenes that's the classic uh noir space to be in um is in some kind of club or bar it's not hard and it plays right into the style and to todd's point like do the minimum reduce every possible point of failure uh, for the audience and that way we can just all we have left to think about is a story and staying on cinematography uh, a hair in the gate longer um he did i'm a a cornball today um he did a lot of long lenses at the start right across the street uh, a lot of these kind of easy panning motions and it's perfect it reflects him following and then after getting involved, we switch to these up close things. And so there's, as there's a shift in the story, there's also a shift in the lenses and the angles going from these longer perspectives to these wider lenses being more close after being approached by the subject that he was following. And so there's a very subtle, quick, I mean, that happens, you know, maybe 12 minutes into the story, uh, that that shift happens. And even in the first five minutes, there's a lot going on before we even get started at the story. And so, I also want to commend him as someone I'm he was to and it's probably in the same exact degree that I'm a cinematographer, a DP. He was a cinematographer at that point in his career, like and he does a great job of directing the camera where he sets up a scene and he lets the characters enter and exit the frame as the scene opens or closes or establishes a new setting like if they're walking through the apartment um, he doesn't just walk with them throughout the entire apartment he allows them to enter a room and exit the room and enter a new room like he does a really strong job of directing the camera that a lot of first-time filmmakers if they had to go it by themselves Just wouldn't pick up on. And I I have a lot of love for that. He does a great job of using handheld. Not a ton on tripod or or rails um, or dolly, I should say. At the end, as the perspective shifts, as the story uh, punchline comes into view, there's a a dolly shot there. I don't know that there's any other dolly shots in the entire movie. Um, I want to say that's probably it. Maybe he hid one or two in there that I didn't pick up on. But or at least draw attention to, but there it's very obvious the rest is handheld. And even whenever we're, we're not moving the actors around, he does a great job of adding a lot of subtle movement to keep the camera alive, um, even though they're still. And so you never get the sense that, Oh, we're on sticks instead, you know, we're, he's adding just very subtle. I, I mean, maybe the, the, the Ari flex was light enough where he didn't have to add it. I, I've never used the the 16BL. Um, so I don't I'm not familiar with with the you know oddities of, of running that particular camera. I know on my my super sixteen that thing is heavy enough to where if, when I put it on my shoulder, if I want it to stay still, it'll stay pretty still because it's probably, I don't know. 35 pounds or so with the matte box and with the Whoa, lens. Whoa, really? Yeah, it gets Dang. up there. But the the nice thing, so I have an Aton or an Aton or Auton. There's like, it's French. So I think you pronounce it however the F you want. Aton. Um, Aton. Extera. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, all it's French. <laughs> no, they're snooty. They can handle it. <laughs> yeah. uh, and So they uh, the, the Atten Extera was like the last line of Super 16 cameras made uh, by Hatton for sure. But it's, a it has what they call the cat on the shoulder design so that it, it hangs out on your shoulders so well that I shot on this camera for a full 10 or 12 hours, uh, about a year and a half ago. And I never felt it. I could have gone another 10, 12 hours. Like I never felt it by contrast. I shot a, a an RE. It wasn't the, the 16 BL it, it was the sr three. And I shot that handheld, on my shoulder for like five minutes. I was done. That thing was unwieldy. It was a beast. I I literally, couldn't couldn't handle it. And so it was just a massive contrast just based on uh, the camera build and the layout of the the, the, the form of the camera. Um, so hats off to Atten, not, not that they're listening. I think they do sound stuff now. I don't know what they do. Hmm. So, yeah, props to Nolan, you know, doing a lot by himself from what I understand. And I'll see if I can dig up some articles and put it in the show notes. He shot this film over the course of a year is what I remember hearing him him describe. Uh, I, so I watched this movie after discovering Memento. I was like this, it blew my mind. Um, Memento didn't. And I went and was like, I need to find what else this guy has done. And so I dug this up and uh, I think maybe whenever I found Netflix DVD rentals, I had them ship it to me. Netflix is great. If you ever are trying to find obscure stuff and you, you don't want to buy it, just get their DVD rental, do a whatever five month dollar a month thing and get their obscure dvds if you still have a way to play it and so most people probably don't um and so i dug into it and i was like he shot this thing over the course of a year he would rehearse during the week probably block it out go shoot it on the weekend with his cast get it processed and review it see do i need to reshoot it do i need to to redo anything and then, you know, spend his week editing, rehearsing and then working in order to pay for the, the film stock and the, the whole process. Right. And so it was a labor of love for sure. And one that paid off. And so uh, this to me, even though uh, there's whatever some some bumps and bruises in this thing, it's for me like a, a really incredible, you know, uh, work of art uh, and labor of love for writing and editing. um fast start man they get off really quick uh this is a really good rule of thumb for most videos no matter what you're making this is probably a good rule of thumb there's always going to be a reason to break it but open fast open with a lot like get us catch our interest he opens with this montage of gloves a box opening pictures jewelry items being touched and we kind of get the impression that you know this is this a robbery what is going on Um, we don't really piece together what's happening but that's kind of the point they he wants us to ask the question of what did i just see because it's pretty quick and then we immediately cut to uh this vo and and intercutting with his interview right we see a shot of him inside the dunkin donuts and then he's on the streets walking around as we hear him talking about describing his life to someone and we're in a cutting that with him typing on a typewriter uh which is quaint at af in 2020 and so we of course later find out the punchline that he's not like talking to a therapist or his dad or someone uh he's being interviewed by a detective in a police uh, station and so it's you know, held withheld from us what this all is uh, until the end. And I think generally speaking, he does a great job of advancing plot and story instead of in not needlessly retreading obvious ground. Um, This is something that would be uh, kind of hard to do if you're a first time writer, uh, as you're trying to fill up, for him, 70 pages, but most of us, 90. Like, 90 is kind of the minimum runtime you want out of a movie. And not that every movie still does that, but generally speaking, 90 is your minimum. Especially for something that gets released in a theater. And so, you get tempted to just put in filler, and he doesn't. He he, he steps away from that pretty well. Um, like, at the... And even some, some obvious parts that would be a trap for, for new writers at the beginning, right? Whenever the, uh, Cobb confronts them in the cafe, he says, you know, Oh, you're a writer. And he has that hesitation. No. Uh, and he's like, oh, okay, yeah, you're a writer. And he's like, why do you say that? What makes you think I'm a writer? He doesn't say because you hesitated. That's kind of the obvious thing. We, as the audience, you know, start to fill in. Yeah. Because you, you have a tell, you gave it away. You paused. Um, instead, he adds new analysis as clever exposition, right? He starts going into, oh, well, yeah, you're, you're aimless, you're whatever, you're a vagabond, you're walking around finding other people more interesting than your own life or whatever it is, he says. And it's just perfect exposition in the form of this kind of Sherlockian analysis, and he's being kind of undressed right before you. So that was a really great opportunity to advance the story instead of turning it into this really crappy back and forth of, well, you hesitated. No, I didn't. And that's that's not interesting. Right. Take the audience somewhere they they are not already thinking. The the other thing that is in the editing, that's part of the writing is kind of the frequent cuts. uh out of sequence, right? It adds all these questions and tension because in that first five minutes, we see so much. We see him you know, in his goatee and his long hair. We also see him in a suit mm-hmm. uh, cleaned up and then we also see him you know, banged up and bruised. And so we're very, and then throughout the film, we start teasing those moments again. Okay, now we have a way to kind of orient ourselves. Oh, he's, he's cleaned up and he's in the suit. Oh, now he's, he's beat up. Okay, now he has his goatee again. I understand, like, and intuitively we understand that we're seeing these things out of sequence. That is a pro freaking move, man, because he never says it. He never makes it hit you over the head, obvious, pardon the pun. And so that that would be something that he really trusted his filmmaker instincts. And I just cannot tell you how impressive that is as a first time filmmaker. We're looking at Nolan knowing what we know about him now. But if you're. Watching this movie for the first time, even, you know, after seeing one or two films and having to recognize this guy did this out of nothing. He just trusted his storytelling instincts. That's really, really damn impressive. And in a similar sense, the editing has some really strong edits in there from the standpoint of there's these frequent cuts to black to signal a passage of time or a transition. Uh, That's a pro move, too. It's very invocative to just say oh maybe i'll do a fade a slow fade or maybe i'll do a another establishing shot um or maybe i'll add a voiceover here once you start using voiceover it's super tempting to keep going back to it and he doesn't he withholds voiceover and that's such a strong power move instead he recognized the the genre that he's making is a noir and it's a thriller these hard cuts to black are all that I need to sell this transition. Um, And so understanding your genre that you're working in is paramount to to helping your audience along um, and telling your story. Um, The other thing that I really like is at the very end, again, another incredibly polished move is the intercutting of the murder reveal with the police interview. He's now revealing the twist and a in a very you know climactic way. This is raising the hackles as we're discovering the real motivation and who was the real prowler this entire time uh was Cobb. And the blonde is not as in on it as she thinks she is. Uh there was a whole ulterior motive all along. Um and that's done in a very polished professional way. And you know, he does a great job of using, you know, kind of the, I don't know a better way to put this, but the, a different Hitchcock rule than we usually talk about, which is indicate instead of show like there's the scene right where the the hammer is being uh, blown on this guy's hand. We're breaking his fingers and we're hearing him yell. Um, and then we, we kill him. Right. He turns he flips the hammer over and he hits him with the with the nail puller claw and. The temptation would be to show the violence and instead we show the reactions to everyone experience the violence and we have the cut in audio. So there's this very simple, easy way to sell the violence without having to show it. And that, you know, flashbacks of Psycho, if you will. Um, It's very well done, very well executed and just plays perfectly into the genre that he's making um, to have maximum impact on the audience. And I think that those are the things Uh, And we'll get into locations here briefly. Um, Those are the things that was able to get him memento. A studio exec uh, was able to look at his work and following and say, holy crap, this guy knows how to make a movie. He knows how to write it. He knows how to have a payoff. Uh, Let's see what he can do with the budget. And those are the, the all those things put together. Right. The knowing how to direct the camera, knowing how to edit your work in a, in a way that is going to add to the story. The reality is this story, the plot, it isn't helped at all. Uh, it isn't driven by the sequence of events, like in the sense of taking things out of sequence and and editing it in this way does not advance the plot whatsoever. Instead, it adds intrigue and interest to the viewer, and that is what you know allows us to appreciate the the finale, the twist, uh, because we start building all these questions, um, and he's he's just got us hanging on, even though those details are are fairly meaningless in the in the grand scope of if you were to watch this in perfect sequence, uh, none of that is really affected or impacted by uh, the. It
0: might just be more boring.
1: Yeah, that's it. That's all, and so. Brilliant. And so a film, uh, you know, a producer looking at this film, he was like, oh, I got to see what else this guy has in the tank. Um, because if you give this guy, let's say, nine million dollars, maybe he can make something like Memento. Maybe we should cover that next week, which we will. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler. Spoiler. <laughs> and so locations. And I think this is maybe the most important part of uh, the analysis that I wanted to do on this um, and why I watched it so many times is. He didn't have access to anything for $6,000. Pretty much all of that is going to like feeding your crew and film. That's it. This guy had absolutely nothing. If you were to shoot it today, he would probably break his own love of film. And he is the biggest film honk in the entire world. Um, but he would probably shoot this on like my Canon 60D. <laughs> like he would just say, whatever. Now I can make, instead of a $6,000 movie, I can make, you know, $150 movie um, and just buy food for everybody. And so, because all the locations are super simple, I would bet he didn't get permission from Dunkin' Donuts to shoot that shot at the beginning. He's shooting it from outside. We're not capturing any audio. It's just a guy sitting in a window. There's no reason you need to really, I mean, you see their, their logo, but this gets into contract law, which we'll we'll touch on here in a second. But we're we're in Dunkin' Donuts. Then we're all over the streets. Then we're you know intercutting with him in the apartment. And so the access that he has on the streets is such an easy way to scale up this universe, because he's not going to get access to some closed gated park, right? Uh, that's beautiful. Instead, he can go out and he can shoot these wide shots or these long lenses on the streets where. You and this changes from state to state and country to country what the r- rules or laws are about shooting in public spaces. Um, but generally speaking, you can probably shoot on streets as long as you're not featuring anybody in your shot. If you don't put a close up on someone's face, then you're fine. If they're just one in a crowd, generally the rule is that's okay to use. And so, knowing that, he's like, Okay, so I have access to streets what else do I have? I have a buddy. Who, I don't know if this is true, but maybe he has a buddy who owns a coffee shop. Now he can film a scene in this coffee shop. Um, or it's not hard. Maybe he shot and I know he, he said he used to shoot industrials, which is kind of a catch all term. It doesn't mean you're shooting factories. Um, it just is this catch all term for corporate projects. Um, mm-hmm. like you and I shoot industrials all the freaking time. Um, it's just how you pay the bills. And so Maybe through shooting industrials, he got access to this coffee shop. I don't know, but he has access to his, maybe his own apartment, right? We have it. We have a shot, uh, scenes in the writer's apartment bill. Uh, we have the apartment that they break into the, the cheating girlfriend, um, so to speak, uh, and the stairwells that probably go to all these apartments. He shoots on a rooftop. He shoots in a bar. He shoots in some apartment that is the the blonde's apartment, uh, and then there's like an abandoned apartment that could also probably be the writer's apartment just remodeled. Like they probably could have pulled all that stuff out, tore down the, the wallpaper threw a dead bird in there and now suddenly the what was before the writer's room apartment building is now just uh, an abandoned place that this uh, that Cobb has taken you know the bill the young guy and then there's maybe an office I don't really know what the room is with the detective it could be anything maybe some office building and so I think he probably said here's what I have available what can I write based on that one of the problems of shooting in apartments is they're not very interesting. Shooting in an apartment is not inherently interesting, and you have you you kind of need a really good reason to do that. Otherwise, you kind of want to be in more interesting spaces, like a like a house or or even you know just fun spots. Like the bar itself is an interesting, fun location. There's life there, but I think he asked himself, "How can we make apartments interesting?" And I think this, if I had to bet, if I were to just you know take a crack at unpacking why he made following. I think he said, how can I make apartments interesting? What if they're being robbed by our protect protagonist? Because now we have stakes and tension in an otherwise dull setting. And I think he worked his way back from there. Okay. Well, if it's about robbery and thievery, maybe it's about trust. Maybe I can make a thriller. Maybe I can style it in a noir in order to take advantage of all the cinematic cues that we discussed earlier. And so I would imagine he kind of backed his way in based on the locations that he'd had available um, and said, how can I make it interesting and tense to be in an apartment? Well, robbing it, you're afraid of getting caught. And so there's just built in tension around that. And so that's a great way to kind of start staging your story because we don't really enter an apartment until we've established what this guy's MO is. Yeah. And so. I don't know that's kind of my 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 methodology whenever i start thinking about what do we have access to i think primer is another good case study of this and uh my reco for when we get to the end of this show here in a few minutes uh will probably be another good case study i'm not whatever i'll get into that in a second but yeah i don't know what do you think <laughs> wow Yeah, Todd, you. <laughs> i can't follow that i can't, I can't follow that
0: Um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I I think that the, I did notice the camera, the camera movement. And I didn't, when I watched it, I didn't know that he shot it. Mm. I kind of assumed that he did just because it was his first film. And like, I know that he knows his way around a camera. So I kind of watched it thinking he was, he was, um, filming it.
1: But you also know because of our work together that it can be really hard to direct and DP at the same time. And so Mm -hmm. I understand why you would be hesitant and not just assume full on that he would also be shooting it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was just so intriguing that one of the. okay. so one of the things that you mentioned was uh, that I identified with was how he revealed. You talked about how he revealed the the big reveal at the end to us. And how he didn't just let the character, you know, find out from Cobb or let us find out, you know, while we're watching it happen in real time. It's too late already. She's already dead. And we're finding out with the main character, with him, with it being too late for him already as well, because all the the, the evidence was planted. He's already in the police station He's not going anywhere. He's going to be arrested. And so we're all finding out together, you know, at the, at the same time, like that is so, it's so brilliant for a first time writer to do something like that, because it's so easy to just, to just have the twist and just reveal the twist, you know, in just a, a, a normal way. like, Think about it like you're writing the the film, and uh, you're okay. I have I have this, and I want this to happen, and that to happen, and and uh, this person says this, and that. You're thinking of a million things. To also think, no, how I reveal it is very important. I want to reveal it this way, you know, and be methodical about it. About that detail, is is unbelievable. So, you know, we say on this podcast like that, you know, perfection is the enemy of good, right? Or the enemy of making anything, yeah. you, you could say. But at the same time, you do want to try to make it really great, to make it as perfect as you can. I think that the 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 problem doesn't lie in the attempt at perfection. The problem lies in the in when you get caught up in the minute detail that doesn't matter. And knowing the difference between the two is the biggest thing. Knowing that the reveal is literally the most important thing in the film, you gotta spend a lot of time getting that right, writing it the right way, you know, that if you fail at 10 other things, don't fail at that, you know?
1: Cause it's so it, meticulous, it's so perfectly timed As you're watching, you're listening, it's all just completely bound up seamlessly. Yeah, it makes me feel
0: like all of his other films almost. Yeah. I mean, like, uh,
1: I don't want to. You can see the flashes in this, you know. Yes, I uh, see Inception in this. You see Inception, you see The Prestige, you see uh, Memento, you see. Even, you know, hints of interstellar, um, right? Like it's right. all there. Even, mm-hmm. you know, sections of Batman, like his love of time um, and is all throughout uh, started here. You could see his fascination from the beginning.
0: And I don't know if you noticed this, but on on Bill's door is a Batman logo.
1: Yeah, so I, I don't felt, know if that was anything like what, like, what are the odds of that? You know? I, yeah, I wonder if there's part of it was just fascination with Batman or that it was kind of a, a, a head nod to uh, the dark detective. Like, uh, oh. that's kind of one of the original noirs, um, Batman. Um, and so maybe yeah. it's just kind of this gentle, like,
0: hmm, hey. <laughs> it, I just I just loved it because, so of, great. you know, it just it just was a an interesting little little thing that happened in that. Yeah. So it, that's, that's really interesting too. That opened my eyes a lot too. When he said that of, of, you know, yes, you don't have to be perfect, but you should really f- try yeah, hard, yeah. especially when you're in a moment where it matters, you know? Yeah.
1: No, I love that. And this is such, to me, last known we'll we'll move on is an incredible feat because I would never recommend someone make a low budget, noir thriller like that's practically suicide in, in filmmaking because you need a budget you need you need cool locations you need so many more actors um you need dressy events like noirs need requires so much more than what he gave but the writing was there and the execution was there It was just, it's clever. It's whenever I see like on the the cover of the film, there's a quote from whoever that says a fiendishly clever. I I can't, I'm saying whoever, it might be like Roger Ebert or something. Uh, I just can't read the type, but it called it fiendishly clever. And that's to me, the reason why, um, is because he did something so difficult, uh, with a really intelligent approach. Yeah. Anyway. It's all about story,
0: man. And he's just the king of drawing you in to the detail of a story Absolutely. and, and getting lost in it where you don't even, you don't necessarily see the cinematography or the acting or the actors. Or remember that you're watching a movie cause you're in the story. Yeah. Cause like this kind of style of film, not really into it, not into black and white noir stuff. <laughs> I like color films. I yep. really do. And like, I'm not really into the who done kind of thing I guess I don't know but like there's so many other deeper aspects to the story uh it's an, it's about people yeah. you know it's not about necessarily burglary or or whatever and granted there were aspects of it that were a little like not fully necessary I don't know I'm saying that wrong I think that everything was kind of necessary but they were just like not as important as others, but I didn't like Pablo honey. <laughs> I think it's the worst album to me. I think they think it's their worst album. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I know that they hate creep. Um, yeah, but, which is a shame, but like it's necessary. Mm. It's necessary. You know, it's necessary. And it's, it's the bones, man. You can see the bones there of memento. You can see the bones of inception and yeah. Yeah. Just, was was beautifully executed on all fronts for sure um,
1: and super entertaining for a first film unreal <laughs> unreal Six yeah. grand Six grand well done sir yeah um, amazing So oh what are you gonna recommend this week?
0: uh yes so I want to recommend another first film of a great director that I that I love that we all know and love Quentin Tarantino uh-huh. Reservoir dogs from 1992. It's another amazing example of a film that that has a very basic plot. Uh, I want to say one location. Um, I can't remember. I would say I three.
1: There's a diner. Three. Oh, yeah, because
0: there's flashbacks. There's an and
1: office stuff. and then there's the the warehouse. The
0: warehouse. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But to do so much now. He's not a very good example of don't show the violence. Uh, He's in fact, the antithesis of that lean in, Um, but it's that, that is a good example of know the rules so that you can break the rules. Mm -hmm. Right. Hitchcock wrote that rule and he's like, okay, I wonder what it'd be like to break that rule over and over and over and over and over again to where you don't even see it necessarily anymore because that's just what this movie is. But focusing on, the acting and the story and leaving the locations not necessarily as a super important aspect of the film one of my favorite Tarantino films by far uh, yeah it's just it, fantastic and it was 1992
1: crazy it was almost 30 years ago crazy oh my god yeah
0: i know wild I know. yeah I was 12
1: i'm glad you said that uh, we'll add that to the short list that's <laughs> really, really long. Yeah, uh, we, oh my gosh, We. Yeah, I would love to, to
0: talk about that film. To.
1: Nice, I'm gonna recommend another movie that's black and white by a well-known first-time filmmaker. Uh, it's called Pie, it's by Darren Aronofsky. Oh, it's yeah. a brutal movie to watch, honestly. I don't want, this is one that we're not gonna cover just because I really <laughs> don't enjoy watching this movie. But it is a good Yeah, I know. I know. I think it's hilarious. And I thought about that. Like, I'm about to recommend something that I'm not going to watch. But if you've never seen it before and you call yourself a film nerd, you should probably watch it just to kind of experience that uh, because it'll get referenced quite a bit. I think his next film after Pi was uh, Requiem for a Dream, uh, which is a radical shift in in story um, and style. And so, yeah, Pi, it's very inventive and original and experimental it is the quintessential art house movie uh, as far as i'm concerned so check that out we'll have both of those in the show notes so that you can check out the trailers and so stay tuned for next week i don't know what i'm talking like instance Stinson all of a sudden. Um, so stay tuned for next week. We're going to cover uh, Christopher Nolan's follow-up memento because I'm curious, what does it look like to go from a $6,000 movie to a $9 million movie? Um, and what can we learn from that process? And so tune in for that. Don't forget, subscribe, review us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts, except for what's the SoundCloud? We, we're not on SoundCloud. Um, yeah. And so... Leave us a note if you want to talk about a thing. Uh, you can do that at this specific episode at com slash following. And
0: our quote of the day is from Roger Corman. One of the worst things you can do is have a limited budget and try to do some big looking film. That's when you end up with very bad work. Tiche. I mean, yeah. know your limitations and work your strengths into those limitations. If your limitations are acting, maybe... You know, you can't find good actors. Maybe give them fewer lines. You know, if you if your limitation is budget, then maybe make a short film in one location that you have access to all the time. Your own apartment. I mean, we've talked about it here. uh, The. Uh, ad nauseum i mean maybe not here but at least personally we've talked about how always sunny in philadelphia started with a camcorder (laughs) they spent three dollars on tapes for a camcorder and they made one you know two minute skit uh uh in their apartment and that got them the deal with fx uh for always sunny which is in i think it's 15th season now oh my god amazing unbelievable There is no excuse. You just find your strength and you adhere to those and you don't try to do too much with something that you don't
1: have. Very great quote. Awesome. Roger Corman is kind of the OG filmmaker who he would pump out film after film. Like I hesitate to say like 20 movies a year, but he made a lot. And there's filmmakers who got to start with him. James Cameron started by making like piranha two, I want to say, uh, for Roger Corman. And I loved piranha, uh, in. When I was a kid, I watched a lot of B-movies, B-horror. I watched a lot of horror movies. I watched Piranha. I loved Piranha, too. Um, I I think it might have just been called Piranhas. I don't know. But... uh, (laughs) Aliens? Yeah, it was flying (laughs) fish. It was literally flying piranhas. And, yeah, aliens. Um, Sorry. um, (laughs) Excuse my friend. He's a little slow. Uh, (laughs) I was, like, waiting for you to get it. (laughs) And so, like... Roger Corman was this OG of just making it work, of just whatever it takes. You know, here's a script, go make it. And, so I, I, I have a lot of respect for, you know, what he has to say. And uh, even though a lot of his films aren't exactly standing the test of time, the industry has a great amount of respect and ad- admiration to that man for what he was able to accomplish. Um, and I love this idea, like lean into exactly what you were saying, lean into your budget. If, if you, Nolan didn't have $100,000. Um, and so he didn't try to make an espionage thriller with CIA agents. Like he was like, I'm going to make a noir thriller about two dudes (laughs) who never met before and they they break into apartments and they don't even break into that many they break into two uh maybe three if you if you include the guy letting him break into his own apartment (laughs) like they kept it as basic as you know as as he could and so lean into what you have uh don't try to stretch it thin and yeah good writing so yeah that's all i got love it
0: Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. I had a blast talking about this film. I, I absolutely loved it. I adored it and it's an easy watch. I think Yeah. it's not, yeah, it's not super long. So you can sit down and, you know, have a cup of coffee or, or a beer or something, watch it and you're, you're done pretty quickly. Um, and it's, it, holds you yeah. you know the whole time uh so yeah thank you for joining us we appreciate it make sure to share review subscribe all that good stuff it means a lot if you have a movie that you'd like us to to cover to chat about to just give our opinions about it please share we'll we'll cover it for sure and join us next week we're covering memento so make sure to go watch that until then i'm todd i'm wes go watch the movies
1: yeah.